0: Welcome to Mostly Books Meets, we're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life and we hope you'll join us for the journey. Week, I'm delighted to be speaking to Eve Chase. Eve is a star on the rise. She's published four novels, the latest of which, The Birdcage, was out in April. Her third novel, The Glass House, was a Sunday Times bestseller, a Richard and Judy book club pick, and sold nearly 200,000 copies across all formats. We're expecting readers to be just as excited about The Birdcage. Eve's novels are perfect for book groups and The Birdcage is her writing at her best. With wide ranging reader appeal, her books have been reviewed in many publications, including the New York Times. And one of our previous guests, Lisa Jewell, has called her one of the most enthralling novelists of the moment. Eve, welcome to Mostly Books Meets.
1: Oh, thanks so much
0: for having me. Quite an introduction. it must be strange hearing it all about yourself you know because I guess you're just kind of living in it don't you and then when you stop and actually reflect on you know everything you've achieved
1: yeah I think you just as a writer you get so involved in actually the actual work of the books and you know getting the words down editing them that actually sometimes it's it's like stepping out of yourself when you have to see yourself as an author and promoting books a nice it's a nice thing I'm not knocking
0: it it's like oh <laughs> and people have read them yay <laughs> <laughs> so we were just saying before we started recording, we've we met once before and it was but it was quite some time ago. It was twenty seventeen and actually you were one of my two guests at my first ever bookshop event mm-hmm. since when I took over mostly books. So I've got very fond memories and we were talking at that point about the book, The Vanishing of Audrey Wilde, which mm-hmm. I absolutely adored but we'll come on to all your books shortly, but let's start off as I do with all my guests by going back to your childhood. So you grew up in Oxford. I did. Tell me about your life as a child.
1: Well, I've got three brothers and um, we moved around little different houses around Oxford. And it was always, it was quite a noisy upbringing. I mean, there were always people in the house, you know, three brothers, always noisy, always had their mates. And so, (laughs) I mean, it was fun, but I didn't actually read early, but once I started reading, I was kind of off (laughs) and, uh, I loved the way it kind of took me into different worlds. And I did kind of crave quiet, actually, even though I wasn't an introverted child, I had a part of me that just longed for quiet. So I used to have a little spot on top of a of a tree in one of our houses. I used to sit up there with a book. <laughs> oh, I love that. I know. And I used to go to the local bookshop, which was amazing looking back on it because they, I mean, I must be very young. And I used to just, I used to go and buy a bar of chocolate from the co-op. And then I used to sit underneath the shelves with a big pile of Mr. Men books and I mean, and it's kind of extraordinary, and they were so sweet, and they just let me do, and I worked my way through. I sort of treated it like a library, and um, was very careful not to get chocolatey fingers on the books, and they just sort of, you know, just saw me there under the thing, and you know, it was a different sort of era, really. I was, you know, all children are imaginative, aren't they? I was an imaginative child, and I started writing stories and illustrating them when I was quite young I've still got those books actually <laughs> like the mermaid queen and all these little fairy tale books um queen, you know, queen of the mermaid how can I get it wrong queen of the mermaid and um yeah they, they were all, I for me it was always like I wanted I wasn't sure whether I wanted to be a writer or an artist but I was determined to be one of them because it just seemed that just seemed like a great idea that you might be able to you know, exist as an adult and earn some money by doing such, you know, something like that, that kind of absorbed me so much. So I think I was really lucky, actually, to know what I wanted to do quite early on. So I think that's great. I was just didn't suddenly think, oh, I, I want to be a physicist and then change my mind and decide to go into journalism. I always knew that I wanted to write
0: yeah, I was about to say that. I mean, to have that kind of clarity of thought at such a young age is amazing. I mean, I, see, I meet people, you know, you know, people in are 25 and 30 that haven't got a clue what they want to do, let alone, you know, a child. To have kind of tapped into that creative side or the 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 bit that kind of you could express from such an early age. Really lovely. I love the idea of you sitting in your local bookshop. It's funny, actually, we have a situation um, at the moment where we have an awful lot of parents that come into our shop and are, are very much like their kids, don't touch the books and to yes. be quiet. We're always like, don't worry about it. Touch the books, make loads of noise. <laughs> Completely yes. undermining the parents, but I just—it's such a joy to see kids getting excited about books. So I can kind of understand why they let you do it. Although I'm not sure I'd have been too happy about the chocolate. No, I know. (laughs) And also I remember it was a Red House bookshop in in Summertown
1: in Oxford and it's no longer there, sadly, but they used to have a big stand in front of the window and it was a perfect kind of height. It must have been about two or three foot off the ground. It was a perfect height for me to crawl underneath with my chocolate and my stack of books. And so I must have been viewed from outside, you know, as this old girl. (laughs) But anyway, I, I grew out of that. I grew too big. Probably because of the chocolate. And then I moved on to the local library down the road, and, and my library card was um, just fantastic. I, you know, we didn't, I mean, we did have books in the house, but actually it was very much more, we didn't have a huge amount of money. And so I would never, my kids come to me and go, Oh, I really, you know, it's a brilliant new book out. Can you get it for me, mum? And of course, I'm so delighted that they, they want a book. I'm like, Yes, of course. And off <laughs> I go. Whereas, back in the 70s and early 80s we didn't really have much money so you know the library was everything Mm. and I think the joy of a library is that you can try so many things and you don't have to love them and but you can then work your way around and you develop a huge sort of just a sort of vault of knowledge don't you really um, at quite a young age and then from that point you can then go on and sort of develop your interests and what sort of things you really want to buy and you know by the time I was sort of 12 or 13 I would have had a paper round and then I would go off and save up for the new Virginia Andrews book or something like that. And it was really, it was harder and I treasured it. And then I would be passed around all my girlfriends and, you know, those lovely foil covers, incest in the attic. We're like, oh, heaven.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was like really a big deal, wasn't it, getting your, your own books when you've been using yes. the library. What books do you remember reading kind of first? What were your first childhood memories? Well, it's difficult.
1: I mean, apart from the Mr. Men thing, which just sounds so basic. But then I, once I found Ina Blyton, actually, um, I was absolutely, I loved Ina Blyton. I know she's slightly problematic now in some ways. But at the time, I just, I think it was things like the magic faraway tree, just for me as a little girl, it was just like the idea that there was these little worlds in the tree. And, you know, it just it seemed as real as anything. I mean, you don't have that. As a kid, I guess you don't have that, um, that real sort of binary sense of what the real world is and what the you know, imaginative world is. And they all seem to sort of melt into one another. And it seemed entirely possible to me that, that you could go to somewhere like the Oxford University Parks and see these huge trees with big sort of caverns inside it and, you know, little holes and wonder who would live there. And so from from then I would then move on to sort of Mallory Towers and Judy Bloom and I'd work my way up, working my way around the library shelves. And I would have, I think, when I found Agatha Christie, that was an absolute joy because she had written so many books. And I always loved people. I love prolific authors because I, I could move, I read very fast and I could move from
0: one to the other. Yeah. So I probably read the whole every single Angus Christie by the time I was eleven, you know. Oh my goodness. Yeah, you're right. Once you find that author and we say this to kids time and time again, it's you know, once you've got it, grab onto it because then you know you're gonna have this series of books that, you know, you, you know you'll enjoy them, won't you?
1: I think the big difference then was that we didn't have a TV for years, and then we did have a, you know, a really rubbish black and white, and there was nothing really on, to be honest, yeah. was there? You know, if the TV worked, you'd have to give it a sort of slap, and it would sort of shake, and then you might, if you were lucky, you might get a picture, and you would get that picture of a strange girl, you know, with a spooky girl against it's a the white. rainbow stripes. Yeah, like what was that? I, mean, I didn't what understand it. That? <laughs> and you think, well, not that means there's nothing on, so you'd go off, so you know, obviously there were no. So it was a sort of screenless childhood, and mm. um, I'm not anti-screen at all, but I certainly think that actually for, for readers, it was a sort of joyful time because you, there weren't really any. There
0: was nothing to really distract you
1: yeah, apart okay. from your
0: friends. Yes. I had an email conversation. We we have a youth ambassador scheme at our shop where we have children up to the age of 18, the review proofs, re, review our advanced copies of books for us. And I was emailing one of them the other day and she was talking about how much she enjoyed the actual process of reading a book um, being at, rather than reading on a screen. And it was so lovely because she was like 14 years old, hearing that from a child that clearly is of the screen generation. Yeah. will still value it. And I think that's... Um, Hopefully that's never going to go away. I don't, I don't think it is. I think over the last, you know, 10, 15 years, people were worried it was going to. But Well, actually,
1: I'm, I've got three teenagers and they, they're all obsessed by their screens, of course, but actually they all like to read on paper very mm. much. So. so it's interesting. I think that they, I did speak to my 14-year-old son about that and he's just said, oh, it's a different, it feels different when you read a book and it's a different experience slightly. I mean, I, I read on both paper and in my Kindle, but they haven't really sort of fallen in love with the Kindle in the way that, I would have perhaps expected them to. Love
0: that. <laughs> <A little bit. laughs> so what happened after school? Because I know you ended up working as a journalist. Yes. Uh, was that in London?
1: Yeah, well, I went. I did study English literature at Manchester University. And apart from the Anglo-Saxon, which I loathed, I, I loved it. And uh, I did. I actually I had a chance to do a, a creative writing course on there in my third year with Michael Schmidt, who was at Carcanet Price at the wow. time. So yeah, so we had great. And then... I set up a creative writing magazine called Square One with um, Jesse Armstrong, you know, who's now the writer of Succession, and Sam Bain. Wow. And Millie, who's now Jesse's wife. So it was us four and we set up that. I I keep trying to think, where is my copy? Because it's obviously a study classic. It's got one of Jesse's (laughs) short stories in it and it's got some short stories by me and poetry and things. But I think that was really useful because it was acknowledgement, I suppose, for all of us that actually, yeah, we
0: wanted creative careers. So did you meet at university or was that after uni? No, that was at university we set up Oh, fantastic.
1: Yeah, Yeah, and I helped with the Mancunia and things like that. And I left Manchester and did a um, one-year postgrad in periodical journalism at the London College of Printing. And I went from that into magazines and um, freelancing, sometimes in editing capacity. You know, that's what I did. I worked for lots of different people over the years until I was about, I think I was 31. And then I started writing with Polly Williams and I wrote The Rise and Fall of a Yummy Mummy, which was a hit. Um, I thought,
0: oh, this is good. (laughs) I wasn't sure to mention this, because obviously the author that I was speaking to today is Eve Chase, but Eve Chase is not actually your name. Um, Your actual name is Polly, and you've written, so Eve Chase is a pseudonym. Um, Sorry to interrupt, My Chase is my surname, is my real name, actually. So I am actually
1: Polly Chase. But, you know, I I do definitely think of myself as Eve Chase when it comes to my book.
0: So I will actually turn around now if someone says Eve. Oh, really? (laughs) you've got the two identities yes so you did that I assume because the the writing style between the the two different genres is quite different um, yes yeah yeah it's I mean it's quite a common thing isn't it with with authors and it gives you the chance to kind of explore different avenues yeah totally. so let's talk about your first book and and how you got to write it because you said you started to write you, you put pen to paper with your first one when you're 31 roughly yeah um, so during your 20s did you know that that's where you wanted to go or were you just kind of enjoying your career in print and just saying do you know what this is actually this is what I want to be doing or did you have that in the back of your head that you wanted to write a book?
1: Oh I very much had it in the back of my head and I thought well I'll definitely do it one day but I loved journalism I absolutely I, I just hugely enjoy having, you know, I managed to travel all over the world. And I, inter- I was, I interviewed a lot of people and um, I loved the interview process. I loved meeting all these extraordinary people and talking to them and seeing their houses. And mm. I just thought it was a huge privilege, really. And it was a real sort of golden years for magazines, actually. There were a lot of, you know, print magazines, glossy magazines. There was a lot of money. The pockets were deep. You know, they really would send you to write, you know, to interview somebody on the other side of the world. And Nice. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it has changed now. And so I was there at the right time. And I, I was having so much fun that I kind of didn't really write fiction. And that kind of did bother me. And actually, when I got pregnant with my first child, that was when it was a bit like, well, if you don't do it now, you're never going to do it. And then he came along. So he was premature. And it was quite an intense experience, really. I wasn't really expecting a baby. It's like, I, just, I don't know what's going on with my
0: body. Something's I know, happening. it
1: sounds ridiculous. I was so young. And I'd only been with my husband, who's you know, Eldis's father for like five months. So it wasn't really planned. And we'd sort of catapulted into this world of grown-ups and parenthood. And I I was completely ill-prepared <laughs> I had this premature baby. And so I think all that intensity of that experience, it just fed into that first book. And so that first book almost kind of I, I never believe, when authors say all well, that book wrote themselves, I think, well please, what what you know, I want what she's taking, you know, because it's <laughs> just
0: no book writes itself. But that probably came the closest to it because it was I was living it at the time. Mm. And so I hear, you know, you hear this time and time again when someone has kind of a quite a significant life event, like you say, you had your child and actually it was a, it was a slightly dramatic experience because the child was, was premature. It does make you kind of stop and think about what you're doing and why you're doing it, doesn't yeah. it? And you probably didn't anticipate that it would have quite such an impact. How did you go about getting your first publishing deals? Did you just follow the traditional route or did it happen in a different way for you?
1: I was really, really lucky. I had, had an introduction to the late, great Ed Victor through a friend of mine, a guy called Malcolm McLaren, who was the, obviously, late, great Malcolm McLaren who I had interviewed years before and become friends with. And he said, ah, Polly, yeah, you know, I'll introduce you to my agent. It'll be fine, you know, get you millions, you know. And he, he did a sort of cultural way. I and mean, he, he was brilliant because he was always like, what do you want to happen? Make it happen. So I was like, okay, you know, off we go. So he'd, he'd sort of track him around to Ed Victor and said, Ed, this is Polly... And I sort of talked about the book I wanted to write and sort of Ed looked slightly doubtful and said, it's not, wasn't really his kind of thing, <laughs> but he had got this fantastic assistant who was um, Lizzie Kramer, who was about to go off and become a proper agent to another agency. We'd, I would like to meet Lizzie, met Lizzie, absolutely love Lizzie. And she's been my agent ever since. And she's one of the best agents in the world. I and mean, she did The Girl on the Train. She's just formidable. So yeah, we've been together since the beginning and that. I was incredibly lucky and Lizzie was like, loved the idea. And so we went, I wrote 40,000 words and I sold it on that first partial. Wow. So I missed all those kind of rejection slips and everything. But of course, you know anyone's career in publishing—it's always up and down. And of course, it was never quite, never quite as easy as it. You know, debut books get a lot of noise, and if they if they hit the right notes, they can, you know, they can get a decent amount of money. But it's not about doing it once. If you want you've got to keep doing, it and you've got to keep producing great works. And, and you, you've got to give every time you've got to give your book your all. So you never really feel secure. But maybe you know that's just the nature of the game. I
0: think. Yeah, 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 it's like any kind of self-employed, yeah, setup, isn't it? Really, is it? You're you're only ever as good as the last whatever. Yeah, so, um, let's talk about Eve then. Let's talk about your books. Your first book, Black Rabbit Hall, um, which incidentally, I, I should say to everyone who's listening, um, we, me and um, Eva look at each other on a video and she's got the most delightful um, full-size classic Penguin book edition of the cover, which is wonderful, right behind you. So that came out in 2015. Um, how did that come about in terms of that versus what you've been doing as, as Polly? It was just a book that I really really wanted to write. I
1: had this sort of image in my head of this house in Cornwall. I know Cornwall pretty well. I've been going there for a long time with my family. And I'm quite a visual writer, and I could sort of visualise it, almost like a sort of stage set, and I was about to you know, get everyone moving. So I had it quite clearly plotted in my mind, and I decided that I would do it. And so I started writing that, and then we decided to put it forward to publishers under a pseudonym just because it was so it would be judged basically on its own merits rather than seen as one of the Polly Williams books and so yeah and then I sold it it went out under the name Eve Chase and my American publishers loved the name Eve Chase and so they were like we really want to be we want you to be Eve we want you to be <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah that obviously did incredibly well and then it was subsequently followed by The Vanishing of Audrey Wilde which as I mentioned at the beginning is when we first met um, and I absolutely adored that book I thought the um I love the dual timeframe thing that went on there. So you've since gone on to write a further two novels. The Birdcage is your latest one, and it's out in April. Tell us about the book. Give us your elevator pitch. I'm dreadful at elevator pitches. But I'm going
1: to the best <laughs> one—it's about three half sisters who share a famous artist father, and they're basically summoned by him to return for a reunion at this place called Rock Point, which is near Zena on the Cornish coast. And it's a white house on a cliff, and they haven't been back for 20 years since they were the catastrophic summer—it's in 1999 and the day of the total solar eclipse—and these sisters have basically fallen apart. They kind of drifted apart over the years and it forces them all together, one sort of stormy New Year weekend, and they basically forced up against what becomes very clearly as deep secrets from the past and also secrets from one another. So that all has to be resolved within the course of this weekend. So it's it's told from the point of view of one of the characters in nineteen ninety nine and the build up to the day of the eclipse and also from the New Year in contemporary times. So, yeah, there's, it's full of uh, secrets and f- sort of messy, uh, dysfunctional family who are also lovable and characters you kind of root for, but who have to do quite a lot of uh, sort of reflection and uh, analysis of themselves as a family, really, to get to the point where the book ends.
0: Mm. So you talk about the fact that there's lots of different secrets and you're absolutely right. There's actually, it's actually quite complex the way it kind of all Pulls together. Yeah. Do you plan the books? How do you write? Are you someone that kind of comes up with an initial idea, or do you have like a structure that you knew these things were going to happen? Because with something as complicated as this book, I feel like you must have to have some idea of where it was going. I always have an idea of where something's going.
1: I always know how it ends, or I can't really start it. And I know my characters, and I know my setting. My setting is really important. I have to know where. that setting almost becomes character in its own right and I have to know it pretty well or find out about it before I start writing. And I do write an outline, but my outline rarely bears any relation to the finished book, <laughs> So, I'm which is kind of frustrating. I would love to be one of these writers who can almost beat by beat work it out, but I seem to get some of my best ideas actually in the process of writing itself and that's just how my brain kind of works and Mm -hmm. so i've gradually accepted this and go and have started to go with that more i mean i don't think there's any right or wrong way but certainly i think the writing process is easier if the more you can outline the more you can plot out beforehand because it's reassuring you don't feel like sort of plunging into the dark and you don't get to sort of cul-de-sacs plot-wise because every word every chapter has to earn its place in the story and on the page. So I take out, I redraft a lot, I rewrite a lot, and I probably always will take, probably delete at least 30,000 words per novel. Wow. Yeah, I try to skim it right down to the bone, really.
0: (laughs) The thing is, like you say about the structure, the initial structure, not actually bearing any resemblance to the final product, it just sounds to me like that's part of the creative process then. And it must be quite interesting once you've actually got the final novel and it's on the shelf and then you compare it to what you've written to begin with, see how those things changed and why they changed.
1: Yes. It's, I mean, it's always such an enormous relief, to be honest, <laughs> when it's gone. And, it, you know, and it, the, the actual process is always longer than you think because you have to have, you know, all the final book edits and the book pages come. And then it's the final bit where it's like, you know, this is the last chance to change anything. And of course, I'm kind of like, oh, God, you know, what have I missed? <laughs> um, but at a certain point it is, you know, it's off. It's like the the ship has sailed and um, then it's very much it's kind of really about the reader at that point, And I just hope desperately that they enjoy it. That is the sort of simplest emotion. It's a kind of relief and just the
0: hope that other people enjoy it and get
1: something out of it.
0: And it's a strange process, this publishing, Lark, isn't it? Because, you, you know, when did you finish this book? Well, I just finished the final book pages probably two weeks ago. Oh, OK. So it's actually not that long, I was going to say, because when you actually, I suppose, finishing your initial draft is probably what I mean. Because, you know, there's quite a long process, isn't it, from when you initially submit to the point where the book's coming out? Oh,
1: yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's been
0: submitted for a while. Yeah. Where, so you talked about the fact that it was, this one was also based in Cornwall. Yeah. Um, and the fact that the the location is an important part of, you know, one. I think you described the locations very well. I think, personally, I feel like I can really see them when I read your writing. Where did the idea of the story come from and where did the idea of the location come from for this particular one?
1: Well, the location I'd written in Black Rabbit Hall, I'd set the novel on the south coast, which mm-hmm. was on the Roseland Peninsula near Port Scatho, a place I know very well, near Foy. And it's a gentler climate, actually, and because you haven't got those wild winds coming in off the Atlantic. And I, I love walking, actually, and I've walked around on the other side on the north coast near Xena, and it's it's just a completely different place, really. It's much more brutal, uh, mm. and also because I knew that the father in the book is going to be an artist, and and that area of Cornwall, the St Ives School, has got long, long history of attracting artists, especially post-war artists, mm-hmm. and. And you go there and you can see it I mean, it's a kind of like the, the abstraction of the moor and the, and the fields and the rock Barbara Hetworth for example you know those huge monolithic um extraordinary sculptures are very much you know you go and see you know there's big boulders on the moor and you think ah yeah of course so that also fitted so it just worked and in terms of the the actual story I thought it was really interesting the idea of having half siblings and uh, you know how they stick together how if you've got, and one of the key things about the book, I should say, is that the mothers all were warring for a long time. They overlap, So you've got the wife, the mistress, and the life model. And so as they were growing up, the girls were brought together in the 90s in this house by the grandmother, but their mothers wouldn't speak to each other in the drive. So you've got all those layers of conflict. And somehow, as an author, a storyteller, you want to find a way of resolving them. And so the more conflict
0: you've got, really, the better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so I thought there was a lot in there with with the half sisters yeah the joys of family dynamics Eh. yeah <laughs> and once you got the initial idea did the story come to you quite quickly or was it something did it take quite a while for it to evolve
1: I always get the gist of a story quite quickly but I have to drill down in it I have lots of notebooks that I just keep brainstorm brainstorming until I finally something kind of catches mentally and then you're like okay that's good and then I'll work down with that but I yeah I think anything any book that's got quite a lot of suspense and twists and secrets has to be worked out because you've got to think about ways of how you're going to reveal the information to the reader and what you're going to hold back and so if you don't know them yourself you're kind of going in blind you've got yeah. to be able, you've got to have knowledge of the structure of the secrets before you start you can go back and put them in but it's easier if you know beforehand
0: yeah absolutely to stop you like you say going down blind alleys yeah so um we're recording this in March, so the book's out in April and the podcast should be released after the publication date. So we're at this point at the moment where, like you say, you've, you have submitted the last draft two weeks ago. Um, you're kind of in the calm before the storm. How are you feeling about it all?
1: Well, I've had some extraordinary... Amazing quotes from fellow authors that have really buoyed me, and I it's so nice. And I can't—I sort of blink and I think are they actually talk. Yeah, they're talking about my book. <laughs> I still find it quite strange. And I, you know, Lisa Jewell, Sarah Vaughan, Ray, Rosie Wolfe, those extraordinary writers who I'm a huge fan of. So it, I find that um hugely encouraging, and it does a little bit to, you know, make me feel less anxious about the whole thing. But it is—I I always find it hugely anxiety-making just before a book because you just don't know how it's going to be received. But ultimately I think you just, you know, I I also think, well, it's done now and um, mm-hmm. I'm proud of it and off it goes into the world. And then I turn my head to the next book and I try not to get a- attached to either like the praise or the criticism because that way madness lies. Really. Yeah, absolutely. Just work through it.
0: Yeah. We started recording this podcast series during the coronavirus pandemic. We did it in response to COVID. We started it in September, 2020, and we've been doing it ever since. Now, of course, we've kind of, we're not at the end of it, but we're definitely seeing the light in terms of coronavirus. But we've also now entered this horrendous stage where we've got these awful events happening between Ukraine and Russia. So it's just really been a mad, bonkers couple of years. Mm. Um, how have things been for you during this whole time, for you and your family?
1: Well, I mean, it's been uh, really up and down. So, you know, my husband's business couldn't operate at the beginning of lockdown at all. So I began to feel very much like the main breadwinner in my shed in the garden. <laughs> you know, and that sort of doesn't, the pressure of having to produce work, which I, in one level, it was fantastic because I could just go into the world of the birdcage and really block the rest of things out on another level you can't wrap yourself in cotton wool and you're when I've got three children who are being homeschooled so it was on a practical logistical level it was really difficult as it was for lots of people but on the other hand I had a shed at the bottom of my garden I had a job I could do with the children around so I felt very lucky and um Mm -hmm. I found it more than I mean apart from the practical issues of the homeschooling and everything I found that the it was just mentally very draining Mm -hmm. um I don't know about you, but it just felt like you are constantly trying to absorb new event, information, trying to work out what risks were, and whether I could go and see my mum for tea. If I, yeah, I remember sort of buying her a camping stool so that she could sit outside on her friend's driveways <laughs> and to, and chat, you know. Yeah. And then someone stole her camping stool. <laughs> no, <laughs> who does that? Yeah, I think it was probably another slightly older person who wanted a camping stool to sit in the driveway. <laughs> I you know it was cousin who was down. You know those mad days of like, have we got enough loo roll? You know, yeah. it's like, you know the, the one's priorities change, and it's always a balance, isn't it, between being aware of the news and being able to function. So I mean, I, I'm you know the news at the moment is so horrific, and it's just, I uh, just gutting, isn't it? It's just heartbreaking. Mm. It's awesome. uh, and I'm having to limit. You know, I, I feel like a moral duty to absolutely know what's going on, but I have to limit what I see and how regularly. I was watching the news every night intently and then I sort of just had terrible, terrible dreams. So I've had to sort of scroll, you know, I have probably watched it once every two days now, but I keep it, you know, I, watch, I, I read it, but it's. I think it's something about the visuals and having that rolling, yeah. that rolling film in your head. Um,
0: yeah, there's an awful lot on the television around it all at the moment. And the uh, it's funny actually what you just said about um, the beginning of COVID because that's actually exactly how I felt about the news for COVID as well. It just got to the point where I had to almost outsource it to one of my team because there was stuff I needed to know for the business, but I was, like, yeah. I was trying to run the business. But I was like, I can't deal with all the different changes. So can you just? <laughs> that was... She was really yeah. upset. She was watching the news obsessively. So I was like, Can you just do that for me and, and just tell me I need to know? So. And also, I felt like I, you know, my young,
1: especially my younger children, I had a, a duty to them to stay positive and reassuring, mm. a kind of like a safe harbor, and I didn't want to become completely like running around with my hands in the air. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's interesting though that you you obviously were able to bury your head into the birdcage, cage which is fantastic when I speak to different authors um some people found that their creative process just really stopped due, as a result of COVID you obviously were able to continue it which is fantastic were you able to continue reading during COVID because some people struggled with that as well
1: yeah I read I yeah I'll always read I can read <laughs> I've always been able to read whenever wherever um Sometimes I did resorts of just sitting there with my gardening magazines or a house magazine. And the names of, I'd say, I'm doing research, I'd say,
0: flicking through the world of materials. <laughs> I definitely need to know what cushion they have in the, they have in the living room. Yeah. <laughs> what was the last book you read?
1: Well, I've read some absolutely stonkingly good books recently. So the last book I read was actually a proof. I get sent a lot of proofs which I'm very lucky to be sent. And it's by Julian McAllister and it's called Wrong Place, Wrong Time. And actually it comes out in the beginning of May, so not long after mine. And it's a thriller told backwards, which asks the question, can you stop a murder when it's already happened? So it's kind of like a Groundhog Day thriller. It's sort of time travel mixed with a mother's attempt to kind of protect the future of her son, which sounds all really Trixie. And it is Trixie. I'm just in awe of her... Skills as a storyteller, but what Julian does so extraordinarily well is that she completely suspends your disbelief, and you're totally with these characters because she writes them so well, and it's rooted very much in family and motherhood and loyalty, all those great things that make you want to read. Really, I think the sort of narrative pyrotechnics of so many books are fantastic, but if they're not grounded in good characters they feel thin and this Mm -hmm. this doesn't this is just it's sort of explosive on all levels so I really think it's going to be huge and I think it totally deserves all the success
0: it sounds fantastic yeah it's brilliant just written it down like we. (laughs) it really is it's a kind of genre-defying book
1: and I do love those books actually that don't quite sit neatly in any genre and I think you know so Lisa Jules does that so well possibly because she's wrote different kind of women's fiction before and she you know she approaches character and family so beautifully I think Sarah Vaughan I read Reputation quite early actually otherwise I would have mentioned it here and that's out at the moment and that's an absolutely fantastic novel just so many good things out at the moment there are so many I feel like it's a really good time for books actually I I do know lots of authors did find it really hard over lockdown I totally know but then at, at the same time they still managed to have produced really excellent books so yeah Maybe, although it was harder to write, it doesn't necessarily mean that the books not as fabulous as they always no. were. They're, they're better, in fact. I do think it's a particularly good year for books. I don't know if it's just me loving them more than ever, but I I have read some really good things.
0: No, I think you're absolutely right. And there's some stuff that's coming up that's just going to be fantastic. So I think, yeah, yeah no, I think there is certainly an element of people being able to kind of break free of what's been going on and yes. do some amazing stuff. I have a theory with anyone that reads that if you're a reader, you have a book that has impacted you in some way, and that could be professionally, it could be personally, but impacted your life in a particular way. Do you have a book like that? And if so, what is it? Well,
1: you know what, I do. And I don't want to hark back to my childhood again, but it, it really was, for me, a really key moment was when I read The Diary of Anne Frank. And I just felt totally changed by that book. And I think actually looking back on it, that it was the first time I kind of stopped seeing books in the sort of Ina Blyton sense of like what happens next or what's down that hole was and I suddenly realised it clicked into place about voice and that actually the life of the head, the way she becomes alive on the page and she felt like a best friend that I hadn't had a chance to meet and um, she brought history alive for me and I just felt like I learned, the word learned sounds it sounds too earnest. It wasn't really learned. I just, I absolutely adored her. I just kind of, I remember, you know, desperately wishing she was alive because I wanted to talk to her. And I'd, I had such a strong reaction to it. And, um, yeah, and I think that there's so many things about that book that are extraordinary. And, and of course, now it has a special sort of uh, resonance, doesn't it? And, you, and I see these pictures of Ukraine and these, these kids, and I think, well, every one of those kids is going to have a story to tell. And the extraordinary thing about Anne Frank was that she was just such a brilliant writer, and who you know, what would she have achieved you know, had she lived? So, yeah, I think it was that, and I think that changed the way I viewed voice on the page. And actually, after that, I started writing my own diary, I'm totally inspired by her. Oh, really? Yeah. Which obviously was nothing like hers, sitting in my urban bedroom, surrounded by kind of you know my Laura Ashley wallpaper. But she was my real heroine. But I think the good thing about diaries, actually, why kids should write diaries, because it helps you get your thoughts. It helps you think, actually, you know, I'm a young person. I've got my independent thoughts. I'm not just what teachers say I am or my mum thinks I am. I've got these uh, whole dreams and ambitions and sense of humour. and You can get it on the page and, and there's your voice, you know.
0: And I can imagine as an aspiring writer as well, that writing a diary could only have been a good thing because it just helps yeah. you get into that routine of, of writing things regularly and, and understanding the benefit of putting pen to paper.
1: Yeah, I think so. So, yeah, I still love that I could sit down and read that now. And, you know, it's one of those extraordinary books, isn't it? That you just, any point in your life, you can go back to.
0: Yeah, totally agree. Absolutely time. Mm-hmm. So, as we said, your book's due to come out in April and we are discussing this after you've already submitted the last version of it. So what are you working on at the moment or are you just enjoying a little bit of downtime before the book's published?
1: Well, I am now, yeah, I'm cooking up a new book, basically. And um, I'm yeah getting the character straight in my head, getting the setting. And of course, I can't say anything because I'll jinx it.
0: <laughs> yeah, don't.
1: Don't, <laughs> don't, point. don't. I I just, I'm not, do not do not i am i am not. I can't talk about it. It has to get to a point in my head where I kind of feel like, yes, that is a good book and it's mine and I, kind of my material. And at the moment, it's kind of like, you know, when you're making dough and it's like not stretching and, you know, you've got a few more hours pounding <laughs> and stretching and working
0: this thing. That's very much the, what the outline is at the moment. That's where you are at the moment. Mm. Well, we'll keep our eyes peeled. I'm glad to know there's going to be another one coming out. Um, and in the meantime, best of luck with the publication of The Birdcage. I think it's going to be absolutely fantastic and it's going to be well received and as I mentioned in the intro, your books are so great for book clubs and discussions. because I think this, there's so many different layers to them. So I think this will be another one where we're well, we pushing it to a lot of people, but we're definitely pushing it down to that market as well. So thank you so much for chatting today. It's been really lovely talking thank to you.
1: you. Oh, it's been great. Thank you so much for having me.
0: All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.